The year is 1871. There's a very successful attorney and entrepreneur who has purchased large sections of real estate in Chicago. And in 1871, we had the great Chicago fire. And most of his holdings was consumed by the flames. He financially went belly up, more or less. That same year, his son, one of five children, four daughters and one son, his son died of pneumonia. Uh, two years later, he's regained his financial footing. He's a very committed believer. He's, he's good friends with a man named D.L. Moody, who was the Billy Graham of that century. And D.L. Moody is having a series of meetings in England, and he wants his wife and his four daughters to be involved in that as well as himself. And so they made a commitment to go to England and to be involved in that uh, movement in 1873 at the last minute when he's getting ready to take a train to New York to get on a boat to go to England. He received some news that necessitated that he stay behind, and so he stayed behind and tied up some business situations, but he sent his wife and four daughters on. As they boarded the ship and they went across to England and somewhere off the coast of Wales, they were hit by another boat and the ship went down in 12 minutes. Of the 313 on board, 261 died. And among those 261 were his four daughters, all died. His wife alone survived. She cabled back, I alone am saved. He tied up everything. He took the boat to meet his wife in England and... One night he's called to the bridge of his boat and the captain says, Mr. Spafford, this is where your daughters are buried at sea. And so he went back to his stateroom and he wrote a hymn that has become one of the most popular hymns in the church these past 150 years entitled, It Is Well. And it goes like this. When peace like a river attendeth my way and when sorrows like sea billows roll, Whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well. It is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. My sin, Oh, the sin of this, or the thought of this glorious thought, my, my, my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh, my soul. So, so in the midst of intense grief that I can't even begin to imagine, this man went back to his stateroom, and he acknowledged that trials come. He acknowledged that hard times come. He acknowledged that Satan buffets. He acknowledged that life is tough. But he said, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. So in the darkest of dark moments, he said, I'm running to the cross. And then that last stanza, which I think was so beautiful, my sin, oh, the Oh, this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. And he's really quoting Colossians chapter 2, where, where, where Paul says this, and you were dead in your trespasses and in the circumcision of your flesh. God made alive together with him, having forgiven all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with his legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers 
and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. But Paul says, you're forgiven. Your sins are canceled. The Lord has triumphed over the demons by the work of the cross. And, and that's what he was running to. Let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. See, I'm preaching on stewardship, and stewardship really says, let this blessed assurance control my thoughts and my actions and my motivations and my, and my passions. Christ, Christ has regarded my helpless estate, and he shed his own blood for my soul. So even though I'm buffeted and trials come and Satan attacks, let this blessed assurance control. So, so stewardship is the joyful embrace of a divine trust with joy and sobriety. It's the enthusiastic embrace of a divine trust with joy and sobriety. And I say joy and sobriety. It's, it's joyful because we, we go back to Colossians 2. It's joyful because we're forgiven of our sins. We have the hope of heaven. Our, our, our debt is canceled before the Lord. He's triumphed over the demons by the cross. He, we are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. We are his adopted children by faith. Not only are we forgiven, we're adopted in the family of God. All of these wonderful, that's joyful, but also it brings sobriety. Before many of us came to faith in Christ, we just believed that we were part of an impersonal system and we were an autonomous person that called the shots. And then boom, you met Christ. And you read the Bible and you say, I am a man or a woman who's been saved by the work of Christ. I'm to glorify him with my body. I don't call the shots anymore. He does. And so, the, and, and one day I will answer to the living God regarding the way I've lived my life. So there's joy and there is sobriety. And that's stewardship. It's the joyful embrace, enthusiastic embrace of a divine commission, divine call with joy and sobriety. So in this whole issue of the stewardship of life, the, issue, the question I've been posing the last few weeks is what type of people should we be? I've gone to the Sermon on the Mount, and this is what Christ says about the person we should be. He says, you are, verse 13 of chapter 5, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under the feet of men. You're the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, neither do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. So, so the type of people we should be, we should be salt. We should be preservatives. We should give flavor. We should bring laughter and meaning to the life of people around us by the way we live. We are a mini advertisement for the reality of Christ. We're to be light. We're to let our light so shine in our office or in our sorority or fraternity or our company or in our workplace or in, in our neighborhood that, that people see us and say, man, there's something different about them. Salt and light. And, and the question is, as, look at the, how do we get there? And the text always answers the questions, I think. 
We get there, Jesus says, by observing what we call the Beatitudes. There are eight of them. Four are internal, four are outward manifestations. The internal ones are, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You see your sin. Blessed are those who mourn over their sin and the sin of their culture. They shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, the teachable, the humble, the approachable, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. So so as I'm poor in spirit and as I mourn and as I'm approachable, I, I see I need more and more of Christ. I see the glory of the gospel. I see the goodness of the Lord. And I say, Lord, I want to taste more and more of your goodness. And as that happens in my life, Jesus says there are going to be four manifestations, outward manifestations. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Blessed are you when men revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. So, so the, the outward manifestations of being poor in spirit and mourning and being meek and hungry and thirsting to know more of Jesus is you're merciful, you're single-minded, you're poor, pure in heart, you're a peacemaker, and you're willing to go to the, to the wall for Christ. Today, I'll deal with mercy. A, a merciful person, mercy is uh, the impulse that makes us sensitive to the hurts in others and compels us to alleviate their needs. It's the Holy Spirit, heaven-wrought impulse in the heart of men and women of God that compels them as they care for others to seek to alleviate needs. Mercy. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. And I just tell you, as you study the Beatitudes, that they all hang together. You can't take out one and just, you got to hang it. They hang together. Merciful. So, so a couple of things about merciful, being merciful. First of all, uh, we all know people. I, I know people who were born nice. Now, they're still sinners, but they came out of the womb nice. They're just nice people. They're they're empathetic. They're caring. I know other people who were not born that way. And I've even, I'll be honest with you, I, I tell people frequently, I am not gifted in empathy. I'm just, that's not me. I, and I have friends who say to me, yeah, man, my empathy is not very good either. And that type of thing. Usually as we watch a football game together, you know. And, and uh, but, but listen to me. Mercy must mark my life if I'm a child of God. That's what Jesus says. Again, it's the heaven-sent Holy Spirit impulse that cares for people and seeks to alleviate their pain. We're all called to be merciful. Now, some of you, you know, you're, you're nice and you receive the Lord and you got the Holy Spirit and your, your mercy index just steroid up. But all of us are to be merciful. Being merciful is a test of my regeneration, my salvation. Let me read James to you. James chapter 3, we'll start in verse 13. James says, for judgment without mercy, uh, judgment is without mercy, excuse me, to one who has 
been shown no mercy. Mercy always triumphs over judgment. So what does that mean? Then he explains it. James says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can such a faith save him if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed, and be filled without giving them the things needed for the body? What good is that? Next verse. So, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. It's barren. And so I read that, and I go, and other scripture, and I go, faith produces works. You're not saved by works, but faith produces a life that is concerned. And that mercy is a sign of my salvation. And so Jesus says here, blessed are those who are merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. And you say, are you saying that if we're merciful, we'll receive mercy from the Lord? Yes, in this regard. He's speaking about people who understand who Christ is, ultimately. So what he's saying is that being merciful is a sign of our salvation. Mercy doesn't save us. We're saved by faith in Christ, but when we receive Christ, things start happening in our lives. It's the same concept of Matthew chapter 6 and verse 12, the Lord's Prayer. Jesus says this, and forgive us our debts, we're to pray, as also we have forgiven our debtors. And you say, well, are you saying then that, that, that if, if we forgive people their debts, their sins against us, God will forgive us? Absolutely. If you're in Christ. That being a forgiving person is a sign of being in union with Jesus Christ by faith. It's a sign of my regeneration. Therefore, mercy is not an option. Mercy is endemic to who we are. It's the impulse given by the Holy Spirit. Christ drives this home in Matthew chapter 18 where he tells one of his most famous parables. He says that there was a, a certain man... He's answering the question, how often do we forgive? And Jesus says, I'll tell you a story. He says, the kingdom of heaven is compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. And when he began to settle, settle accounts, one was brought in to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Now, a, a talent was equal to 20 years of wages. So he's telling a story, and man, he grabs the attention of the crowd. He said he had 10,000 talents, or, and each talent is 20 years of ages. So this guy owed, owed the king 200,000 years of wages. In other words, a sum you can never repay. You win 15 lotteries. You can't repay that. Can never happen. And so this man who owed the king 200,000 years of wages fell on his knees before the Lord, before the, the king, and, 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 and he says, I can't pay you. Have patience with me. And out of pity for him, verse 27 the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. Wow. 200,000 years of wages. Wiped clean. And he said this man went out and he saw a guy who had borrowed 75 cents from him to buy a Coke. Basically. He owed him 100 denarii, or 100 days of wages. So 200,000 years forgiven, and here's 100 days. 
And the forgiven man grabs this guy by his robe and shakes him and says, if you don't pay me everything you owe me, I'm going to throw you in debtor's prison. And then Jesus says, well, the king heard about that. His attendants told him. So he called the man back and he said, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you. And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all of his debt. And then Jesus says this, which is an incredibly attention-grabbing verse. So, also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Mercy is a sign of my regeneration, my salvation, which is the God-given impulse as we see people in need to alleviate their needs. See, there, there are basically three chairs. We have three chairs up here representing this issue. A, a chair, chair number one are, are people, the world religions, all the Muslim, Islam, uh, Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism. Uh, and, and they say this, we, we work and we work and we work to obtain the favor of God. So, so we, we will give alms to the poor, which is one of the five pillars of Islam. We'll give alms to the poor in hopes that somehow we may earn the favor of God. That's chair number one. Ch- chair number two are, are people, we have all types of those people in, in these rooms today. Chair number two are people who say, you know, I, I'm, I'm a self-made man. I pulled myself up by, by bootstraps. I've done it all. Uh, I'm the king of the universe. I'm the master of my fate. I'm the captain of my soul. Out of the night that covers me, black as a plat- pit from pole to pole, I ask whatever gods may be. You know, I'm, I'm, the, I'm the one. I'm the one. And, and, and see, door, door number one or chair number one leads to, I think, incredible self-introspection and you kind of get immobilized or paralyzed. Number two, I don't know how in the world you don't become incredibly arrogant and proud. I'm sure some people aren't, but if I really believe that it's up to me and I've done it and I've, I'm all about it and I, it's me, it's me, it's me, how do you not become arrogant, especially if you have a semblance of success? I always laugh when I watch sporting events. We're going to have the NCAA tournament soon, but there's going to be some play-in games. The teams ranks 68, 69, 70, 71, and 72 or so in the nation. I mean, they're way down there. And when they win the play-in game, they're going to run around saying, we're number one. Well, no, you're not. You're number 71. That's just man. But the third chair is the chair of grace. The chair of grace. The chair of grace says, when I was dead in my sins, I mean dead, God opened my heart and my mind to receive the gospel, and he drew me to himself in Christ, and he let me see the beauty of Jesus, and so I came to him, and he gave me the Holy Spirit, and he gave me community, and he gave me the word of God, and he gave me a track to run on, and I was just kind of out there doing my own thing, and then he gave me some, a place to stand, and he's good. And let this blessed assurance control. Christ has regarded my helpless estate, and he shed his own blood for my soul. It's, it's, it's the chair 
of, of, of grace and mercy. So you're merciful to other people. And see, and, and as you occupy the chair of mercy, you, the Lord opens your eyes to so many blessings he's poured into your life that heretofore you really weren't that aware of. I mean, you open your eyes. You say, you know, not only am I saved, but I have the privilege of living in the land of opportunity called the United States of America where, where I can get an education, I can do economics, and I can, I, I can be involved. And, I, and, and, and some of us can say, and I was born in a family where I, where I was loved. I didn't realize how much I was loved I started talking to some of my friends when I was an adult, but I was really cared for. And, and, but but, but the, the, best, the, the biggest blessing, let this blessed assurance control because this holds everything else together, that Christ has regarded my helpless estate. God in the flesh, and he shed his blood for my soul. And therefore, I can be merciful. You see, there's a guy in the Bible called the Apostle Paul. And he was, he was in chair one with a leg in chair two. When Paul was a young man, he says, I was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. I was so uptight and rules-oriented that I just made people around me sick, basically. So when it came to the law, I was faultless. I was the man. And he said, I was breathing out threats and murderous accusations against the church. I hated the people called Jesus followers. And then he met Christ. And his world was turned, up, turned upside down. And this guy that lived in chair one and had his feet planted in chair two, one of the last things he wrote was a book called First Timothy where he says, I, Paul, am the chief of sinners. How do you go from a Pharisee that's working away in the favor of God, who's a self-made man, who's thumping his chest, to somebody who says, I'm the chief of sinners? Here's the answer. You walk in the gospel of grace. And you say, let this blessed assurance control. It's Christ. So, so understand this. Mercy flows from the gospel. It's the gospel. It's Christ. And mercy flows from that. There's a wonderful man named D.A. Carson that I like so much. And he wrote a book several years ago called The Cross and Christian Ministry. I try to read it every year. It's 120 pages, not that many, that long. But he talks about keeping the cross central. Let me just read a part of a comment. It's in the worship guide. He says, uh, I, I had a dialogue with a Mennonite leader. This is a self-described Mennonite Christian man. And he assessed the Mennonite congregation. And he said, one generation of Mennonites cherishes the gospel of grace and believes that there are entailments of the gospel in certain social and political commitments, that, that, that the gospel is central and we operate out of the gospel. So the next generation has assumed the gospel and emphasized the social and political commitments. The present generation identifies itself with the social and political commitments while the gospel is variously confessed or disowned. See what I'm saying? You cherish it, you assume it, you push it aside. And I'm saying that we've got to be gospel people, that mercy flows from the gospel. And then he says this. He says, in the first instance, the church doesn't depart from truth because of rancid unbelief, but by raising relatively 
peripheral questions to the place where they displace what is central, the gospel. See, I applaud our people who work in adoption and foster care. As we keep the gospel central. I, I applaud people who labor in the pro-life movement, the gospel central. I, I applaud and, and stand beside those who speak out against sexual slavery in our, in our major cities, but the gospel central. I, I, education reform, literacy programs. The, we have people that, that, that work at homeless shelters and feed Indigent people every week. That's wonderful. That's glorious. But the, the gospel must be central because we operate out of the gospel of grace. This is one of my favorite 15 movies. It's called Amazing Grace. It's the life of William Wilberforce. William Wilberforce is one of my heroes. He, he was a member of parliament, born into a very wealthy family, um, became a believer in Christ uh, as a, in his early 20s when he had a very good friend named Isaac Milner who uh, traveled through Europe with him one summer. And Wilberforce was 21, and they studied the New Testament in the Greek because Wilberforce was a scholar, a Greek scholar. And as he studied the Bible, he became a believer in Christ. He goes into Parliament. He's in Parliament for almost four decades, and he, he sets his hand to the plow, and he says, I'm going to labor to see slavery eradicated in the British Empire. And, and so just months before he dies, the, the British... House of Commons votes to abolish slavery in the British Empire. And this is in 1835 to 1840. And it's, it's wonderful. He, he started what became the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals. He labored to establish child labor laws. When he first went to Parliament, they were letting five-year-olds into the mines and letting them work all day because they could get between the crevices. And he said, that's That's horrid. When he became a member of parliament, there were 200 laws on the books in England that allowed for capital punishment. And Wilberforce said, that's ridiculous. So, he, he, so I, I love this movie, but I heard a, a man I respect very much give a critique of the movie. And this is what he said. And I think he's got some merit, so bear with me. He said, in the movie, there comes a place, and the movie is historically sound. There comes a place where Wilberforce has become a believer. He's in parliament. He's, he's in fellowship. He's a member of a church. He's, he's sharing the gospel. He's really going for it in the Lord. And he goes to see an old pastor that first taught him the gospel when he was a teenager. And the pastor's name, true, is John Newton. John Newton wrote Amazing Grace, the name of Amazing Grace. So he goes to see John Newton. He says, I, I'm considering going to the ministry or I want to stay in parliament. And Newton says, God may have raised you up for a time such as this. And he stays in parliament. And, and, and my friend who gave this critique said this, my problem is if, if you're looking at the movie without the historical lens, you think, well, either he chose to serve Christ by preaching the gospel or decide to be someone involved in social concerns. He says, but that's not what Wilberforce did. Wilberforce was a man who lived under the banner of Jesus. And so he began every day with, with worship and Bible study, and he ended every day with family worship, and he shared the gospel, and he was very involved in the local church, and he, he, he spoke valiantly for Christ wherever he went all of his days. He said it wasn't the Christian ministry or the Christian faith or social concerns. It was Christ as Lord of all, and he's got a good point because that's the way Wilberforce lived his life. And so what I'm saying is, is that we must preach the gospel and live out of that. There's a confession of faith that we hold to called the Baptist Faith and Message. Article 15 
says this. I'm going to read the last part first. In the spirit of Christ, Christians should oppose racism, every form of greed, selfishness, and vice, and all forms of sexual immorality, including adultery, homosexuality, and pornography. We should work to provide for the orphan, the needy, the abused, the aged, the helpless, and the sick. We should speak on behalf of the unborn and contend for the sanctity of human life from conception to natural death. Every Christian should seek to bring industry, government, and society as a whole under the sway of the principles of righteousness, truth, and brotherly love. In order to promote these ends, Christians should be ready to work with all men of goodwill in any good cause. And I say amen and amen and amen. But we should always read the beginning of that paragraph. This is what the beginning says. Means and methods used for the improvement of society and the establishment of righteousness among men can be truly and permanently helpful only when they are rooted in the regeneration of the individual by the saving grace of God in Jesus Christ. I understand. It can be truly and permanently. We applaud refugee work. We applaud literacy. We applaud helping people that are homeless. But as we go, brothers and sisters, we speak and preach the gospel of Jesus. Because if I meet the needs of someone, and I love them, and I care for them, but they never come to faith in Christ, when they die, they go to judgment. So, so we do these things. But we always operate mercifully out of the gospel of grace. This is who God has called us to be. Now, my, my time is gone, but let me just have a few more minutes here. Hit the applications. Merciful people. Three points, then story. Merciful people are easily entreated. They are slow to be offended and quick to forgive. In, in the book of James, again, in James chapter 1, James says in, in verse 17 that every good and perfect gift comes from above, from the Father of heavenly lights who doesn't change. And then he says this, of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we might be the kind of first fruits of his creatures. So he, he, he taught us. And he makes this application statement. He says, therefore... Know this, my beloved brethren, let everyone be quick to listen and slow to speak and slow to become angry because man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. So you back up and say, how, how do I respond to the work that God has done in my life? What's, what's one manifestation? Well, I should be quick to listen, slow to speak and slow to become angry. I should be approachable. I should have a Short memory and a long fuse. I should be someone who is easily entreated because let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. The second thing is that, is that we speak with care and dignity to men and women. Right after Jesus gives the Beatitudes and talks about us being the salt and light, he talks about the binding authority of Scripture and then he talks about angry, being an anger 
a person of anger and how we address people. And then he gives this statement. It's really an incredibly um, convicting statement for me. He says, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there you remember your brother has something against you, leave your worship. Go to your brother and be reconciled and, and then come back and offer your gift. In other words, it's, it's, it's right relationships. If a relationship is, is out of kilter, and make it right. Because, you see, merciful people have this impulse to do the right thing and, and to meet people where they're hurting and to alleviate their needs. It's all about relationships. And the, the other issue is this. Is I, um, this is just something I throw in. If we're to be merciful, and I'm preaching to myself, if we're to be merciful, we've got to guard against media fatigue or the overload syndrome. I mean, I'll pick up a, a newspaper and I'll read about the, the, the horrific situations happening in a country that I love very much, South Sudan, and how it's just unraveling. I had so much hope and it's just unraveling. And then I'll, I'll keep reading about Africa and read about Boko Haram who are a, a, a group of thugs in Nigeria and Uganda who are, who are seizing teenage girls who are Christians and, and animists and sell them into sex slavery and just rampaging the country. Or, and then I read about in, in Burma, there's a, a tidal, tidal typhoon that's killed all these people. Or just, just, just go around the globe and pretty soon you just you have your head in your hand, you're going, oh, my soul. I want to be aware of those things without, it can't paralyze you. So I've got to guard against that. I've got to be someone who is, understands the impulse to be sensitive and alleviate needs. So here's a little paradigm. I got this from a book called Mercy Ministries by Tim Keller. Wonderful little book. And he says, it's like concentric circles. Start with your family. A family member who has needs. A family member who needs a special touch. And then he says, and then go to your church, because the Bible says we're especially to have love for the brothers and sisters in Christ, and, and seek to care for people who have some special issues going on in your body, local body. And then you go to your neighborhood. So that's just a starting place. You, you find a single mom that needs some child care, or you find a shut-in that needs a meal, or you find somebody that needs some worker. But be, be, Jesus says, love your neighbor. Love your neighbor. And so often I go by on the other side. That's me. But that's what we do. So let me give you two things in closing. Number one, do not ever say this. If you're, do not ever say as a believer, what can I do? I'm a nobody. You have been bought with a price. Glorify God. First Peter, chosen people, royal priest, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. You're, you've been bought with a price. You're to glorify God by representing him as salt and light. If you say, what can I do? Who am I? Understand that is a lack of faith. It is a denigration of the goodness of God in your life. It's from the, it smells like smoke and sulfur, and it's from the pit of hell. Okay. The second thing you've got to guard against is you say, what difference can I make? I'm, who am I? And we all feel that way at times. Matthew 25, I don't fully understand this, but it's there. Jesus says that when we visit the sick 
and we clothe people without clothes, and we feed the hungry, and we care for men and women in their need. In some mystical way, he says, when you do it to the least of these, my brothers, you have done it unto me. So when I care for people and their need and their brokenness, I am in some mystical way touching the reality of Jesus. That blows my mind. So I'll tell you a story in closing. It's about this woman. Her name is Elizabeth Everett. And she's described in one book I recently read as, uh, not very flatteringly, a largest, largest and middle-aged woman, never married. She was a nanny by trade. And so one day she was contacted by a very uh, well-to-do family. He was a member of parliament, and she was a beautiful, the mother of this little boy was a beautiful socialite who was also very immoral. And the father was a member of parliament, we know now, was a heroin addict and also an alcoholic. But they contacted her and they said, we have a five-year-old boy, and he can barely speak, and he's quite honestly an embarrassment to us, so we don't take him out much. Um, he has trouble controlling his head, his neck muscles. But we need, a, we need a nanny, quite frankly, because they didn't want to be around the boy. And so she became the boy's nanny from age five until he left for college at age 17. And four years later, the little boy had a brother born. So she was a nanny for the two boys of this family. And there were many times when they had parents' day at their school, and the parents just didn't go, and these parents never showed up. But Mrs. Everest would go and represent the parents. In fact, there's a very telling and emotional letter written by the oldest boy. When he was 15, 16, he had a big production at his school, his boarding school. His parents didn't come, but Mrs. Everest came, and he said, I walked around the village in the school arm in arm with her for two hours, showing her where I studied and what I did, and the boys made fun of me, but that's okay. I was so proud to be with her. At age 17, this boy goes to college, and his parents fire her for no reason. And the 17-year-old is incensed and said, you can't do that. She's been a faithful member of our family. And they gave a deaf ear to him, and he ended up paying her money out of his own meager allowance. Three years later, he kept in touch with her. And three years later, this young man received word that Mrs. Everest was dying. So he jumped on a train and went to her side and sat beside her until she died. He was 20 years old, paid for her burial. Um, this man kept a picture of Mrs. Everest on his desk the rest of his days. The young man grew up to become known as a man named Winston Spencer Churchill. I think he overcame his inability to speak. Whenever I study World War II and I think about one little island nation that stood against Nazi Germany because I believe ultimately there was one man there who had a backbone of steel and his name was Winston Churchill. And then I think about a woman who was a Christian who spoke Christ who understood that she had a divine commission to represent him to this little boy and she loved him. And so when I think that the Nazis didn't win Europe, I think, thank God for Winston Churchill, and then also say, thank God for Elizabeth Everest. 
I'm not saying you're going to go out and you're going to teach the next one to Churchill in Sunday school, but you might. But what I am saying, when you go out and you touch people and you care for people and you love people, in some way you're touching the reality of Jesus. And that's mind-boggling. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the day you've given us. And I just thank you that we're not people wandering around in super autonomous nothingness. But we are called into fellowship with you, and we're yours, and we're to proclaim you and live out the reality of Christ. You've given us a place to stand, a place to live, and we thank you. So blessed be your name this day. And Lord, I just thank you for the fact that um, we will one day give an account to our Abba Father. And so let us live with the sense of high calling, I pray. Thank you for men and women who've done that in my life year after year. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you very much.